the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. For the past number of weeks, the clock has been ticking down on a possible US debt default as Democrats and Republicans wrestle over tax cuts and spending plans in Congress. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned that the US could run out of money by June 5th unless the debt ceiling is lifted. So this has raised the very real prospect of the US government not being able to pay its bills. An agreement last weekend between President Joe Biden and Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has offered hope that a last-minute default can be avoided. But hardliners in the Republican Party are threatening to vote against it in the House of Representatives when a vote is taken later today. Failure to secure the deal could cost up to 8 million jobs in the US and rock the American and global economies, according to some commentators. Joining me on the show to explain the backdrop to the standoff are Martin Wall, the Washington correspondent of the Irish Times, and Jack Kelly, a senior contributor to Forbes and chief executive of recruitment firm WeCruiter and the Compliance Search Group. I began by asking Martin how the US has managed to reach this political impasse on debt. Basically, this uh, the issue of the debt ceiling, which is the, the legal limit that the US government has in relation to the amount of, amount of borrowings it can actually have on the books. It comes up quite regularly because in American politics, because it is it provides leverage largely to the Republicans in relation to their issues on spending. The, the criticism of the Republican tactics in the United States that comes from their critics is that they become uh, interested uh, slash obsessed with the issue of the deficit when a Democrat is in the White House, but they don't show the same level of enthusiasm about the whole issue when a Republican is in the White House. And the argument that Donald Trump contributed quite a considerable amount to the $31.4 trillion that the US actually owes. So the issue, as I say, of raising the debt ceiling, raising the amount it borrows, gives the Republicans leverage. And over the last couple of months, we have been moving towards the ceiling that the amount that the US federal government can actually borrow. Obviously, if it hit that ceiling, which it actually technically did, I think last January, and in the interim period, in essence, the US Treasury has been juggling money around to try to pay its bills. But there comes a time when those kind of uh, exercises or techniques uh, run out of road and you basically have to face the reality that you've no more money. So the issue then was that there was either going to the Congress was either going to raise the limit that it allows borrowing or suspend the limit at all, or the US would not be in a position to pay its bills. Now, there were various dates put forward both by the US Treasury and by various banks and financial institutions, etc., in relation to when they thought it was going to be. And ultimately, it came down to that it was going to be the early part of June. It initially had been anticipated would be later in the year, but the problem was that the tax revenue on the US side in May was lower than anticipated. Therefore, it brought forward the the day when the wolf would arrive at the door in relation to uh, the debt ceiling. So the concern basically was from the from um, the White House and from other uh, economists was that if the US, given the, the, the dollar's role as a reserve currency, etc., that if the US was not in a position to pay its bills, that it would have a huge implication both on the domestic economy in the United States, but also around the world. The White House was talking about the, the level of impact would depend on the duration of any debt default crisis, but that even coming close to the uh, the line, i.e. if the brinkmanship continued right up to the end, which is actually what we actually have, that it would be 
damaging to the economy in its in 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 its own way. Uh, but if there was a protracted uh, debt default that issue that it rolled on for for several weeks or a couple of months, that you could see a very serious consequences. That you could see the uh, up to eight million jobs being lost across the economy as people stop spending and co- companies and corporations retrenched. And that was where it basically was. So over the last uh, couple of weeks, there were the Republicans have been looking for negotiations with the president for several months. They claimed that they were being essentially fobbed off until they produced their own uh, bill, which basically raised the debt ceiling probably for several months into next year in return for quite significant cuts in spending. The, The Republicans believe that spending... Government spending in the U.S. has essentially gone to hell over the last uh, several years, and that um, if it's not reined in, that ultimately there will come a time down the road where the U.S. will actually not be able to meet all the interest repayments on its debt, and the country will actually go into a, a genuine default. Because in reality, if there had been a default over this current crisis, it would have been a manufactured uh, default because the U.S. is perfectly capable of meeting its debt repayments at the moment. It's just a question of organising its uh, political and uh, procedural arrangements to actually deal with that. It's not a shortage of money. It does have the money to do it. It's just a question of how it gets around it. So negotiations then kicked off in earnest um, in the last couple of weeks and then finally came to a head last Saturday night when uh, there was a 90-minute phone call between, uh, directly between US President Joe Biden and the Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, uh, personally, where they signed off on the, a deal. And the deal basically will suspend the debt ceiling for uh, two years. So hugely important for the White House because it pushes the whole issue of the debt uh, ceiling beyond the next uh, presidential election. So it's been kicked down the road. Uh, but it's no, it will not be a headache in the run-up to the general election. And in return for, for this issue, spending will remain flat in most areas. There will be some uh, reductions. Controversially, on, for, for some Democrats, they, there will be to receive federal um, support for low-income Americans. There are requirements that people work. They're, they're, they may sound strange in a European context, but they've been there for years. They will be um, tightened to a degree Although there's an issue this morning that in reality, uh, the Congressional Budget Office has produced a report where the actual costs of new measures that were put in place will actually expand these programs rather than uh, restrict them. So um, how it really pans out in the end of the day, cost-wise, uh, remains to be seen. So the issue then moves into the Congress, their, uh, their vote on this issue in the House of Representatives on this new agreement between Biden and McCarthy takes place on Wednesday. And then it moves, if passed, moves to the Senate. And the Senate, there are also in the Senate, there are conservative Republicans who are not greatly enthused, who are quite opposed to this issue. And the issue then is their opportunity for people to play games and to delay. And so I suspect we will finally come to a vote in the Senate, probably at some stage over the weekend, but we will be pushing the Monday deadline. But it looks at this point as if uh, Kevin McCarthy has the votes to get it over the line in the House of Representatives today, and then it will move into the Senate uh, later in the week for a final vote, probably at the weekend. Okay, thanks, Martin. Uh, A lot of moving parts there. Jack Kelly, maybe you could just explain to us what the import of a default would be. What, What exactly would happen? Well, it depends who you speak to. 
to me, and, and Martin, thank you very much. That was a great way of summing everything up and, and making it understandable for, for the listeners and myself included. Uh, if you take what the Congress people are saying, it's the end of the world. We're going to run around without hair on fire. You know, millions of people are going to lose their jobs. And I'm not saying this, you know, in a cavalier way. It's just that's what's happening in, in the Congress and the Senate. It's it's kabuki theater. They're really not looking at at the economics of it and the finance of it. And that's what's frightening. It's theatrics. Each person wants to get their face on the camera, get that clip, you know, get on CNBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, wherever to show, look at me, look what I'm doing. I'm working hard. But but in a way, they're not. What it seems to me, and Martin, with the way you were describing it, we're really not going to change the financial situation. We're in a spot where there's trillions of dollars in debt. I don't know how, like our kids, my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids are going to have to be paying on that debt. And they're not making a change. And it's bizarre. All they're doing is try to grandstand between each other. So it's hard for me, after years and years of watching these folks you know, in, in Senate, in Congress, and politicians, everything, if we don't do this, this is what's going to happen. And they put fear into everybody. So that's, you know, it's like a scare tactic. And I, I would prefer in our country if every if we would have adults sitting down at the table and just like a family would have a budget and they would sit down and say, hey, times are tough. We can't go on that vacation to Italy that we wanted to. We can't get that new car we wanted to. We can't get buy that new house because the mortgage rates are much higher. So we have to save money and we have to conserve and we have to cut back. And I don't understand why the leadership in this country can't do the same for the country. Where it's, it's like they're heroin addicts. They just keep needing money and money and pushing, getting more money and spending more money. And I, uh, I think personally, that's the big issue that we're dealing with. They don't want to face that we have trillions in debt and it's not going to go away. And as before the show, Martin and I were chatting, is that we're going to end up having more treasury notes, treasury bonds funding it, which means the banks that are already in trouble, it could be more trouble because you have that disintegration where people are taking their savings and putting in money markets and treasury bills and treasury bonds. And these are things we don't talk about, like the nuts and bolts of banking, of finance gets ignored and the theatrics win the day. And that, that's a that's a scary commentary. Yeah, of course, it's an issue with all governments, isn't it, around the world? I mean, the, the social budgets, the spending on social initiatives just expands, doesn't it? I mean, it very rarely contracts unless there's a major recession or, I mean, even in COVID, it expanded massively uh, right across the world because governments found that they had to support uh, people and they had to support uh, businesses as well. So it's a, and the US debt has absolutely spiraled in the last 20 30 years and it doesn't really matter which administration has been in power so how do you actually how do you actually resolve that i mean isn't is it not just the case that um debt and it doesn't really matter what country you're in in ireland it's the same as well debt will just continue the debt number will just continue to rise and rise and rise maybe it'll go down relative to the size of the economy i think the only way to get out of this is to, to say to the politicians, hey, if, if you don't understand economics, you don't understand finance, let's get people in like J.P. Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon, Ken Griffith from Citadel, Ray Dalio from, from Bridgewater. 
Warren Buffett, get people who really understand economics, understand finance, understand banking, and give them a seat at the table to sit down with the politicians and explain, hey, this is this is what will happen if you do X. This is what will happen to do Y. If we keep spending money and keep you know, putting trillions into the economy, this is what's going to go wrong. And here's what we need to do it and have, you know, sober voices instead of people who are just trying to curry favor by being in front of the camera on TV. Um, I, I think because if it's if they're left to their own devices and this is the problem with what happens is that you, no one wants to be the adult in the room. No one wants to say, hey, you can't eat your candy and ice cream before you have your dinner. No one wants to say, hey, we have to make these cuts and 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 bring everything down, bring the cost down. And everyone's scared to do it because if they do it, they're not going to get reelected. So we're, we're in a really weird situation with that in that respect. Yeah. It's interesting that you want to bring the likes of Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan and other big financial groups into the picture because a lot of people would blame the big financial groups for a lot of the uh, global economic problems that we've had over the past 15 years following the, the big financial crash, Lehman Brothers and, and all of that. And they wouldn't, you know, the, um, the the remuneration that a lot of these guys earn, it's massive and it's well out of reach of the ordinary person. So I'm not sure that the ordinary American would necessarily want to bet their house on Jamie Dimon or others um, sorting out a problem like this. But so far, the politicians haven't been successful. You know, they're just pour- pouring more gasoline and kerosene on the fire. So if we keep doing the same thing, and nothing changes and it gets worse, I think you have to look at alternatives. And just because somebody is really well paid and is very wealthy, that shouldn't say, hey, we're n- we shouldn't hear them. In fact, just the opposite. If people really know what they're doing and understand the mechanisms of finance and banking and economics, those are the people we should listen to. You know, whether you like them or don't like them, you could even hate them. So what? If you hate them, but they're smart and they know what to do and they could help us dig out of this mess. Well, hold our noses and let's try to do it because it's for the greater good. Do you believe that 8 million people would lose their job if there's a, a default? No. You know what? Because... Well, what, what impact do you think it would have both in America and globally? Number one, so I don't think we're going to default. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, however, if it would, it, it would be a challenge. But somehow, you know, they'll come out, print more money, come up with some sort of you know, scheme to 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 set things right. Um, I don't. I think there's one thing that both sides agree on. They they don't want to be in a situation where they're going to be held responsible for destroying the economy and creating millions of job losses because that means they're not going to get reelected. So I think they have a vested interest in trying to keep keep it going and make things work somehow. So they're still going to argue and bicker among each other, but they're going to try to make it work somehow. But the way they're making it work, if you think about it, the way they work, they really haven't done anything. They, you know, they're really just kicking the can down the road. And this is the problem we have here. It's, it's constantly kicking it down the road. And the more you do it, nothing changes. And the debt gets larger. And our kids and grandkids and great grandkids are just going to pay the price. Yeah, that's the way of politics, though, isn't it? Unfortunately, yeah. And that's why I figured we got to have a different way. You know, either get more people in the Senate and Congress who understands finance and economics and could, could add value or just just somehow incorporate them in. You know, listen, I'm not a fan of these multi-billionaires. You know, I'm not loving them. But then, I, you know, but you got to think like how what can we do to, to, to ameliorate the situation instead of just keeping 
can't keep doing the same thing again. Every couple of years, we have the same kind of drama and it doesn't change. And after a while, you know, we have to say this, this is a silly way of doing things. We have to be more grown up about it and we have to make the hard decisions. Jack, you mentioned about living within your means earlier. And if you were the man in charge, what would you look to cut? What would you be trimming? Number one, I would cut, I would cut the government because here in the U.S., they're one of the biggest, if not the biggest employer. The benefits are way better than people get in the private sector. And I would start cutting and saying, hey, we have a lot of fat in all these different agencies. Uh, we have to look wide. We have to have bases around the whole world and be the policemen of the world. Um, we could save a fortune if we kind of take all our, our soldiers, take, you know, take everything back. We don't have to keep spending money on the Ukraine and all sorts of other countries and just be adults about it and say, hey, we have a homeless problem here. If you you guys have probably seen videos of like Philadelphia where you have these fentanyl zombies walking around, it's disgraceful. You know, go to any big city like Portland, Philadelphia, New York, San Francisco. Look at San Francisco. It's it's it was once the most beautiful country, yes, city in the in the in the country. Now it's no one wants to go there. The buildings are empty. The, the commercial, you know, real estate is in trouble, and the banks are going to be in trouble because they're not going to be able to pay their rents. We have to look and say, hey, we can't spend money everywhere and do everything. We got to say, hey, we got to cut costs. We got to live within our budget. And even if it's tough to do, it's for the best for the future. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Martin, you mentioned the election, um, which is sort of hoving into view, if you like, uh, campaigning uh, at least. Um, Donald Trump has a view on most things. What's his view of this? Has he been saying anything about this uh, potential debt default? Well, basically, Donald Trump uh, encouraged his uh, Republican congressman to default. Basically, he said it was going to be inevitable and that if they didn't get everything they wanted in terms of very deep spending cuts, that he should default. Uh, yesterday, uh, Ron DeSantis, who is the uh, running, uh, albeit a distant second to Trump for the Republican nomination, um, came out opposing essentially this uh, McCarthy-Biden deal. So there's a bit of, um, I wouldn't use the word play acting going on, but there is a, the politics, uh, presidential election politics are forming part of this um, narrative also as well. So Trump is doing a town hall on TV in the United States on Thursday. So again, we'll, we'll hear the, the, the Trump view of the world on Thursday coming into Friday. That'll be just as the Senate uh, prepares to vote on, on this issue, I think, at the weekend. So um, whether at this point, whether Trump's uh, view or DeSantis's view will carry weight in terms of, because I, I think, uh, as we just heard, I think the, the, the issue really is, is that the Republicans do not want to be blamed for bringing the economy over the cliff. I think there are probably some people on the far fringes of the Republican Party who actually would probably wouldn't mind if that happened. Um, because I think, Kieran, we also have to bear in mind as well, we're just, we, we spoke of the how we got here and what the, what the debts actually are. In a European context, most debts are drawn, are, are, are driven by government spending in relation to social services and, and uh, essentially... 
in the US, that is true to a degree. Obviously, the Social Security, there's the health issues, but there's also the huge military budget, uh, um, which is there, which the military spending next year will be somewhere in the region under this plan, somewhere in the region of $850 billion. It'll be more than the um, the the next uh, group of nations all combined in relation to its spending. Um and there are some concerns on the Republican Party that they still need to spend more. So the the military budget is is there. Um, then there's the issue of tax cuts and the the the, the you know Trump uh, put in place tax cuts. Uh, whether where people's view is in relation to the, the the theory of trickle down economics and essentially does that come down to everybody or does it benefit the people at the very top? That's arguable, and that argument will go on probably forever. But the um, the in relation to spending and the the deficit and whatever else as well, I think to deal with that, I think we need to actually break down as to what is actually being spent. Uh, how is the money that the US is borrowing? How is it actually being expended? And there are polls here which suggest that sixty um, percent of people believe that uh, spending restrictions or spending cuts should form part of any solution to the debt ceiling. But interestingly would be to drill down into those, um, in, to get the quality of the data in relation to those polls as to whether people believe, well, should military spending be cut? And if so, by how much? Should Social Security be cut? Should uh, health uh, benefits that are given to uh, the public or to military veterans, should they be cut? Or where will the cuts that people suggest should be to take place? Where exactly should they uh fall? Where should the axe actually fall? So, and there is no consensus on that to any degree. And in the meantime, in that, in that vacuum, a lack of consensus where precisely the axe should fall, the political view, it, the, the popular political view is to, as we say, kick the can down the road and uh, let the, let somebody else down the way deal with the, deal with where it'll be. But the, the argument from the Republicans is, is that some point uh, you can scare the wolf away from the door for a certain amount of time, but at some point you won't be able to do it any longer. And the whereby the interest on the debt at the moment is, it's it's large, it's enormous, but it's manageable in the context of the US economy and the size of the US economy. But if it continues to grow down the road, um, will, it be, will interest uh, payments be sustainable in the long term? And if not, what will happen then? Again, will we be in the era of a genuine, default and that will be really scary for the economy where there's no way out of it so um but as i say it remains to be seen as to how the uh in in the in the meantime it would appear even with this um even with this new deal that the trajectory of the u.s debt levels is going to continue to rise albeit the the gradient of the uh the rise will be shallower than it would have otherwise have been yeah, Jack, you seem to be suggesting that there should be a cut in aid to Ukraine as it uh, battles with Russia. That, that's quite an interesting um, viewpoint, if you like. President Biden is obviously fully supportive of Ukraine. You could argue that Russia's attack on Ukraine is an attack on uh, Western democracy and most of the Western governments have been supplying weapons or money, uh, etc., to Ukraine over the past uh, 15, 16 months. What... I mean, just in terms of uh, cutting that military aid to Ukraine, would that really be a, a sensible move? I would uh, say in the bigger picture, if the three of us were on the board of directors of a company, we would have an audit team and we go to our auditors and say, hey, 
Let's look and see how are we spending our money? Are we doing it wisely or not? We all hear stories in the Pentagon where it's like a $1,000 hammer and a $10,000 nail. You know, we've all seen these things. So you, why wouldn't we as a country here in the U.S. and same in Ireland and other countries say, hey, let's get our best and brightest, smartest auditors to take a look and see, you know, should we give $100 billion to Ukraine or should we give $5 billion? Like we just, there's no thought process. That's the frightening thing. It's just kind of willy-nilly, let's, all right, another 500 million or another billion without any thought, where is the money going to? Who's getting the money? I mean, we don't have an accounting for, where is that money? There's, you would think, once again, let's say the three of us are executives on a board of, you know, board of directors, we would want an accounting. Okay, we gave $100 billion, so just rounding up, give a number. All right, where did it go to? Let's get a line item of how each dollar was spent. And we know, are we getting a return on that investment? Or is it going to the pockets of oligarchs? We don't know. And that's that, that as a country, that's a ludicrous way of running our country to just throwing money and hoping it's going to make it better. And if someone like me says, maybe we shouldn't give so much money to Ukraine, I'm going to be labeled, oh, you're carrying water for Russia. You're a Putin crony. And you can't have that dialogue, which we need to have, because everyone gets into their political stance, and then you just fight with each other. Does that make sense? It's hard to do a value for money exercise, though, isn't it, on uh, supporting Ukraine in the war against Russia? And without US support, the Ukrainians won't be able to sustain the war with Russia. I think that's pretty clear. But what do you say, the very least, to have an audit of how we're spending the money and where it's going? And making sure it's 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 useful and not lining the pockets of people who shouldn't be getting it. What's the support like in America for uh, the for the support that President Biden has offered to Ukraine against Russia? I would say at the beginning, I would just arbitrarily pick like a ninety percent support rate, where people felt this is this is this is horrible. You know, Russia's invading this country. This is terrible. But then. As time goes on and the media is saying, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning. And it really doesn't seem we're winning. So there comes a point where I think the American public is just tired of it. And they don't really trust what the government is saying, the official narrative. And I think a lot of the support is waning, but there's still a large support. But that being said, it's one thing to support, but another thing to be smart about it. And how are we spending those monies? I mean, how long can a country go where we're going to have you know, support the war in Ukraine, where we have military bases in Syria now. Pick a country. If you look at a map and you'll see where we are in terms of having army bases and all the money we're spending, it is unbelievable. And that's just one part. And if you go to the government and look at all the different, you know, sectors of the government, there's so much waste. There's so much, you know, money that's just just thrown out the window. And I think we can make, if, if we had the politicians who had the courage to say, hey, we can't just let this keep going on. We have to be the adults in the room and we're going to have to take accounting for what's happening. And, and we're going to have to make some really tough decisions and maybe people get la laid off. Maybe we'll have to make some cuts to be tough, but we owe it to ourselves and for the future to make this a better country. And if we just pretend everything's going to be okay, we, we could veer in, in really scary waters. Jack, you're a CEO of a recruitment company, aren't you? Yes. How's the American economy uh, performing overall, because as a as a recruiter, you must uh, you must see the early signs of any upturn or downturn in an economy. Yeah, it's like being the canary in the coal mine. You see what's happening. I, I'd say it's very interesting. 
in the past, when we would have downturns, a possible recession or recession, it would usually be the blue-collar worker and the frontline workers who get hurt the most. Interestingly enough, it's kind of like a white-collar recession. In the tech sector, for example, just this year alone, 200,000 tech professionals, very well paid, by the way, were laid off. And to find a job for a white-collar middle manager, executive, it's not easy. But if you're in the hotel industry, if you're in the travel industry, if you're in the food service industry, actually those jobs, they're, they're available, if people are fully employed. So it's it kind of flipped what you usually see when there's a tough economic situation. Now it's the white collar workers. And then with artificial intelligence, there's a fear, there's a report by Goldman Sachs that 300 million people, and, and maybe it's a little hyperbole, but there's studies about 300 million people are going to either lose their jobs or have their jobs degraded because of the ascension of AI. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting change that's going on. It's a flip where now, you know, it's, if, if you're the average middle manager, white collar person, it could easily take mo six months to find a new job and maybe you're not going to find as good a job. There is a survey about tech people where they were willing, after years of just getting crazy amounts of compensation, that take job, take you know, pay cuts just to get a job. Yeah, it's a big turnaround, all right. Uh, Martin, coming back to you, what impact has this uh, debate over the debt ceiling had on Wall Street? Well, the basically, surprisingly, I think, are depending on your view on it, uh, Wall Street was quite calm about the issue. There were some uh, little nervousness towards the end of last week where it didn't seem to be, um, where it didn't seem to be uh, a deal coming together. Um, there was a little bit of nervousness, but uh, but but given the the prophets of doom that have been talking for the last uh, several weeks in relation to how the economy was going over a cliff, Wall Street was actually rather calm. The government maintains that its own costs, the cost of uh, borrowing, its costs of um, uh, in, you know credit the default swaps and insurance against de de or default and whatever else, have increased. So its own internal costs have, have risen as a result of the uncertainty. But in terms of um, the, the broader um, US uh, stock market, etc., there really hasn't been any large-scale panic um, right, it's been doing well, actually. Right, it's it's surprisingly, but but I guess it's because it's a forward looking mechanism. So I, I think they're baking in that the theatrics and every, all the doom and gloom may not really happen, and they're betting that you know things are going to get better, and somehow we'll figure it out and print more money, throw more money at it, and we'll get out of it. Yeah, because I don't I don't know how I I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it, it's up surprisingly. So I. A little while ago, I'm speaking to my broker. How do I sell? How do I buy puts or sell? <laughs> because I'm worried that the economy, the stock market is going to crash. And I'm glad I didn't do anything because it's just the opposite. You know, Wall Street is basically applauding everything, right? The issue, I think, will be let's see on Monday what happens if there is no agreement in the Senate over the weekend. I think there will be. I think it will be, it will be resolved. It may be 11.59 on Sunday night, but it will, I think it will be resolved. But let's see if it didn't. Um, however, the other part I think we need to also bear in mind as well is that even a resolution to this issue may have in its uh, in the solution there may be the seeds of another problem that is coming down the road down the way. I mean, we touched on a little while ago in relation to the the U.S. banks, and that may have problems in relation to the to the stock market for further further along, because um, as we stand at the moment. Uh, the Treasury in the United States is literally looking, it can see the bottom of its uh, 
it's a the, the, it's kitty. There's basically, and the piggy bank is is empty. You're shaking the piggy bank for the coins for the for the very <laughs> last very last coins at the end of it, and. They've about $39 billion, I think, in revenue at the moment as, as things stand. Now, bear in mind, there are individuals in the United States who have more, more resources than that themselves. Um, so the issue will be is that if this is resolved on Monday, if the debt ceiling is suspended, I think the Treasury will go, on a, um, will go into overdrive and try to refill its coffers. And the issue then is where will that money come from if they, if they sell a lot of debt? Uh, where will that come from? And the likelihood is it will come from uh, the deposits uh, in banks in relation to because it will be offering higher rates. And therefore, the, 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 the bank deposits of banks around the United States could take a hit in the weeks ahead as people shift their money from uh, money being held at deposit into treasuries, etc. So uh, the issue of the banks and the financial stability of certain banks may become an issue after this debt ceiling crisis is over. That may be the, that may be the seeds of another problem in the economy as we resolve this. Remains to be seen, but I would imagine um, that could very well be an issue of money flowing into treasuries over the next day. Okay, can I just add one thing on, on top of that? That was brilliant. I, I agree wholeheartedly. What's happening too is the big cities with remote work and hybrid work, people aren't going into the office. So you have cities like New York, San Francisco, people aren't going in. So what's happening is the big you know, commercial real estate owners are in trouble now. And who are the ones who give the loans to these big commercial real estate buildings are the regional banks, small banks. So what will happen if these, you know, if these buildings, if these landlords go under, that means these banks are going to be more in trouble, to your point, Martin, where they're already seeing trouble. And now there's going to be another layer on top of that, which, which is another thing we have to we have to worry about here. And presumably that could be a bigger electoral issue for Joe Biden than this defaults debate. Yeah, I think the issue will be is that if the, if the de- default is off the table from the weekend on Monday, the Senate backs this bill, I think the issue of, I think the average American will forget all about the issue of the debt default issue. It'll be forgotten about in a week or so. Um, the, you know, people vote in terms of their economic well-being, um, largely. And if there's issues further down the way with uh, inflation, if it doesn't, you know, ease if the issue in relation to um, uh, banks, so people are afraid of their the security of their money, etc., well, then that can lead into a... Um, and obviously, whoever wins the Republican nom- nomination will blame the president for whatever economic uh, issues or problems or concerns are out there at that particular time. So if Joe Biden wins the Democratic nominate, nominate, nomination, and he's the nominee in November of 2024, well, then the issue will be whatever uh, economic issues are there at the moment, he will own it, and the Republicans will seek to blame him for it. So it will lead into, all of this will feed into um, political uh, issues. The issue will be is that um, there is a school of thought that, that, uh, that, the, that uh, compared to where the Republicans were at the start of this process, what they were actually looking for, what they secured at the end of the day is less than that, significantly less than that, that this was possibly a win in terms of for Biden's negotiating um, success or or techniques or tactics or whatever else. Whether he will get any thanks for that politically, I very much doubt it. Jack Kelly, final word to you. I want you to look into your crystal ball. Do you see a Joe Biden versus Donald Trump presidential contest? And if you do, who do you think will win it? You know, I I don't know. I, Kennedy is getting a lot of attention lately. Uh, DeSantis on Twitter had his kind of uh, 
launch party, he seemed to be pretty sober and pretty responsible. So I, I'm not sure how it's going to play out. I do feel that whoever, you know, whoever is going to be the nominees, I hope they're going to have people who could guide them and have an, a, not to be redundant here, but have an economic background, a finance background, a banking background, and to be able to you know whisper in their ear, hey, here's what we have to do and make some good changes. And, and that could put us on the right path. Mind you, Donald Trump was in the White House for four years, a successful businessman with a big uh, real estate empire. Some would say he didn't make a great fist of it. You know, it's interesting. He had a lot of great ideas. The only thing is, it's it's like one of these Greek, you know, you know, uh, sagas where you had this hubris where you you know could do some great things, but you just <laughs> you have an Achilles heel that just you know is it does your own undoing. So I I don't I don't know if he's going to be the guy because there's just too much drama around. I think we're so tired here. I don't know how you guys feel about it. You're just so much talk. You're so tired of the drama and the theatrics. We just want someone to come in there who knows what they're doing, level-headed, and make things work and clean it up with, with without without you know all the hysteria. Okay, we we'll leave it there. Jack Kelly and Martin Wall, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Martin Wall and Jack Kelly for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.